You're listening to the free edition of Sweden in Focus from The Local. If you would like to listen to a full-length version of the podcast, as well as an additional midweek episode, please check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade to Membership Plus. Here's this week's free edition. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Here we are again for another episode of Sweden in Focus. I'm your host, Tom Henley. This week, we will pick up from where we left off on Saturday and take a look at what is going on with the governmental crisis here in Sweden. We have with us a special guest in the form of a professor of journalism who is going to shine a light on the way Sweden is represented or rather misrepresented abroad and what that means for the Swedish identity. We'll hear what you guys have to say about a possible language requirement for permanent residency here in Sweden. We're going to take a deep dive into Swedish stereotypes. And we're going to catch up with Richard Orange and his wife Mia as we find them in the middle of a passion project. Sweden in Focus is sponsored by Akademikernas Arkassen, providers of income insurance for university graduates in Sweden. Okay, let's get to it. Joining us once again are Catherine Edwards, Richard Orange and Isabella Anderson. How are you guys doing? Fantastic. Yeah, good. All good over here. Great. Also joining us for the first time, we have Christian Christensen, who is a professor of journalism at Stockholm University. Hi, Christian. How are you? Hi. And I'm sure I'm not the first person that's said this, but you have a very Scandinavian name, but you are from America, right? Yeah, I think my parents had very high hopes about some kind of religious future, but it didn't really pan out. <laughs> but have you got um, Nordic roots? Yeah, my father's Danish and my mother's Swedish. So uh, they left the Nordic region in the late 50s. So I was born in the US and I grew up in the UK and I moved to Sweden about 15 years ago. All right, I think we should do a little update. I'm going to give you guys... Everyone listening, a little update about what's happened um, since we last talked. On Monday morning, we were all waiting to see if the Prime Minister Stefan Levine would resign after his vote of no confidence or call for a snap election. And in the end, after mulling it over during the weekend, he resigned. Med den utgångspunkten så har jag hos talmannen begärt att bli äntledigad som statsminister. Nu får talmannen inleda arbetet med att förestå en statsminister som tolereras av riksdagen. Regeringen fortsätter att styra riket tills vidare nu som övergångsregeringen. The day afterwards, on Tuesday, the parliamentary speaker Andreas Norlien gave the moderate party leader Ulf Kristersson the task of trying to form a new government. Jag har överlagt som sagt samråd med alla partiledarna och kommit fram till att till sonderingsperson utse Moderaternas partiledare Ulf Kristersson. And then on Thursday another twist occurred when Ulf Kristersson 
came out and said that he was going to give up trying to form a new government. Det har haft bra inledande samtal mellan de fyra partier som vill ha maktskift i Sverige, men det finns helt enkelt inga parlamentariska förutsättningar. Det är 175 mandat, det är klart igår som kommer att rösta nej till en sån regering som jag skulle kunna erbjuda. And looking at all your faces, none of you seem at all surprised by this move from the moderate party's leader, Ulf Kristersson. Why is that, Isabella? I mean, I think his best chance was getting the center party member of parliament who voted against the fund in 2018. But she came out and said that she would vote in favor of her party. So I think that was really when his options ran pretty thin. Yeah, I think... Um because the the whole reason, as we've discussed before, that Stefan Levine's government was voted down was because there was this strange alliance with the typical right-wing bloc, but also the left party. But that was really just about the rent controls. It's not the case that the left party has switched sides altogether. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not too surprised by that. I think one of the things also we don't know is the extent to which the Sweden Democrats made demands about their influence over the party and that that was presented to the other members of that group which may have been unattractive to them. We sort of have this understand that the voting in parliament would probably go along right-wing lines, but if the Sweden Democrats made very clear and hard demands about their influence on any future government, even coalition like the liberals or the moderate parties may have said that's too much for us. So we don't really know how much pressure they were putting on the, the possible uh, Christensen government. And so once again, it's been a crazy, twisting, turning and tumultuous week in Swedish politics. And the latest twist is that Stefan Löfven has been given a new chance to form a government where the moderate party couldn't. But Christian, you've noticed that outside of Sweden, this whole affair with the governmental crisis has hardly gotten any coverage, right? Why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, it's, it's gotten some coverage, I would say. Maybe it's not fair of me to say almost nothing, but relatively speaking, it's, it's not getting... The kind of coverage we see when there are other kinds of stories from Sweden, which might be about crime or immigration or possible terrorist attacks or the Sweden Democrats. And I think one of the reasons is that when I told people outside of Sweden about what was going on, the reaction was, well, it's either COVID or it's uh, immigration. And I said, well, no, it's actually rent control. It, you know, I can see people's faces, but I imagine they had slightly confused looks on their faces because this is not the kind of thing that we're generally discussing Uh, outside of Sweden, about Sweden. Sweden gets heavy, heavy coverage the last five, six, seven years on a number of issues. But when the government collapses for the first time in you know modern Swedish history, it's got relatively thin coverage. And I think that if, you know, if, if Sweden gets the kind of volume of coverage that it gets in relation to other issues like immigration or about the Sweden Democrats, there should be probably a little more interest in this if the purpose of the journalism is to actually inform people about the country. Because, you know, obviously this isn't as this isn't as tense, this isn't as attractive a story as the Sweden Democrats, or even though, of course, the Sweden Democrats are still central to the story in many ways, or immigration. So uh, I see it as a sort of fairly typical way in which a lot of, a lot of, inter- not all, but a lot of international media outlets tend to focus on a pretty narrow uh number of stories and issues from Sweden, whereas other ones probably get short shrift. And it wasn't, I mean, like you said, there was, there was some coverage, but it almost yeah. felt like the, the coverage came when the no confidence came, but the, the lead up and the aftermath was not there either. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not naive either. This isn't a huge country. It's still Sweden. It's 10 million people. It's still not the center of the universe. But when, but when you think about the fact that 
this is this is a country that's gotten a lot of coverage about COVID. It got a lot of coverage about immigration. It got a lot of coverage about the 2018 election. Uh, yeah, the lead up to the no confidence vote was pretty thin. Uh, even after the no confidence vote, the BBC actually was quite slow to even put up the results of that no confidence vote. I think it came like much later in that day. And, you know, I don't want to do this whataboutism and thinking about, you know, if there was a different event happening in Sweden. But if there was a possible terrorist attack where no one was killed, I've seen this before. These are kinds of things that get put up on social media and, and news sites almost immediately. And I think that, that one of the things I've been critical of is that if we want news consumers to have a deeper understanding of political process in parliamentary democracies, multi-party parliamentary democracies like Sweden, then it's important to cover these kinds of issues. And this goes for other smaller countries as well, like the Netherlands or larger countries like France, where this excessive coverage of the far right leads to people having a pretty weak understanding about how politics actually works, because they get the impression that politics is utterly dominated by one or two parties, where we have six or seven parties here. And we, as we can see, it's, it's quite important actually to understand what the relationship between these parties are. Yeah. And we've learned over the last few weeks how important these smaller parties are, you know, and these smaller parties, centre, liberal, left, they they may make up over 20% altogether, which is, of course, more than the Sweden Democrats. But this 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 focus on Sweden Democrats, is it? do you think it's some form of Schuldenfreude, you know, that German phrase of having pleasure in, you know, the cracks in the Swedish utopianism? And And do you think also a follow-up question to that, even if it's bad coverage of the Sweden Democrats, do you think it helps uh, s- strengthen them by giving them more coverage? Mm. Yeah, I think the first one is a tough one. I mean, that's a really kind of deep ideological question. What I've noticed is I've looked at a lot of international coverage of Sweden, primarily from the U.S. and the U.K. And uh, there's a there's if, starting with the obviously with the refugee issue back in fourteen fifteen through until COVID. I mean, COVID is obviously a very, very different kind of story. Uh, what you noticed was a lot of mainstream outlets really were covering Sweden, the sort of like, the sort of collapse of Sweden and the crisis of social democracy and refugees. Now, Sweden is engaged in some pretty heavy nation branding itself. Uh, Sweden is not shy about pitching itself as being a progressive nation in lots of different areas. But yeah, I think there's a certain element of that kind of, uh, you know, this sort of social democracy. And I would also say sort of homogenous social democracy is being radically changed by this sort of shift in, in immigration. Now, the second issue, yes, one argument that I think is is actually very important is that when you give outsized coverage to one political party, even negative coverage of that party allows them to set the agenda for what is being discussed. And, and we see that very, very clearly. When you look at for example, the coverage of Sweden around the 2018 election, immigration completely dominated international coverage, crime and immigration. And in conjunction with that, it was dominated by the Sweden Democrats. This year's poll has been shaken up by a surge in popularity of the Eurosceptic and far-right Sweden Democrat movement, which could even become the second biggest party in the new Stockholm parliament. Swedish Prime Minister Stefan Löfven urged Swedes to reject what he calls the extremism of the Sweden Democrats. So who are the kingmakers here? The kingmakers are the Sweden Democrats, and the Sweden Democrats are the far-right anti-immigration party. So logically, you put those two things together, and what you see is coverage that is very immigration-focused and very Sweden-Democrat-focused. 
And for example, economics, welfare, education, they were basically non-entities in that coverage. So then when you get a crisis like we have today, where you have rent control and an argument with the left party over the nature of social democracy, you sort of shrug your shoulders and say, I really didn't have any idea that the left party exists. I looked at like, uh, I think, 80 or 100 articles. Annie Love's name, for example, wasn't mentioned once by name. Can I just interrupt? Because I have been pitching the importance of Annie Love to editors <laughs> ceaselessly for years because she is such an interesting politician and, and her position is so key in, in, the, in the sort of block, Swedish block politics. And even though in some ways she should be an easy sell because, you know, she's a she's a youngish woman. She's quite dynamic. She's got a lot of character. Um, I've had zero success. I've never I've never managed to get an article or an interview. I've had interviews set up with her. No one's interested. Same with Nushi Dadgastar. Uh, I, you know, I said, you know, she's the key to this crisis. She's a really exciting person. You, you should put her in your paper. And no one I've had no bite. But the moment I got an interview with Jimmy Orkerson, straight in the paper so it, it it's not it's not just the journalists it's more the editors because they have an even more limited understanding as you say of the politics so if it's if it's not something they recognize it's very hard to get them to be interested and love is a particularly interesting character because she's becoming a sort of crystallizing figure about the shift of social democracy towards the center and the relationship to tweens a new dynamic in swedish politics where we're seeing the sort of center left grouping and a sort of more nationalist right-wing group and I, you know, the fact that love isn't discussed that much, I agree with Richard completely here. It's, it's really a shame. And also the new leader of the left party, Luis Dagestar, it was just mentioned also. But I think these kinds of things, and I mean, I've written some opinion pieces for like The Guardian and I write for the local as well now a little bit. And what you see is for, for large papers like The Washington Post or The, or the Guardian, I've pitched lots of pieces about this, about small parties in Sweden, how we need to pay attention to these things. And uh, I basically don't even get an answer because the, uh, unless it's about feminism, uh, reindeer in northern Sweden or about Sweden Democrats, the interest level is relatively low. Yeah, two things that are kind of so interesting about what Christian's saying now and that I know he's been talking about for such a long time is um, firstly, in journalism, we do have a bit of a problem with focus on extremes in all topics. Like it's always easier to sell a headline um, about a huge scandal or um, extremes at either end of, of the spectrum. Uh, and I think that's something the journalism industry is uh, trying to address with focus on more long-term trends. We see that with climate journalism, for example. Um, and then Sweden in particular is an interesting case because, as you say, Sweden itself in some ways is quite an extreme country, not just in in location and climate, but also in uh, on the political spectrum. And things like the World Values Survey always has Sweden right at, at one end. And they lean into that in their branding. And then that's been capitalized on by people on both the right and the left in other countries, whatever suits the agenda. So with Sweden in particular, people are quite keen to present it as an extreme. And then when you have these, yeah, as you say, these issues about rent control that doesn't fit either narrative, it's something that affects many people's lives here, but it's not an extreme or on either side of the spectrum. It's hard to get coverage of that. Well, we here at Sweden and Focus will keep you all updated on whatever twists and turns occur with the Swedish political scene. But for now, let's take a break and hear from our sponsor. We'll be back soon and ask the question, do you need to know Swedish to reside in Sweden? 
If you're new in Sweden, or you've yet to master all the intricacies of Swedish working life, you may not be familiar with the unemployment insurance system here. Unemployment insurance is compulsory in most of the EU and the UK, but in Sweden, it's partially voluntary. But what does that mean for you? Well, to be entitled to the full income insurance benefits available in Sweden, you'll need to join an R-Kassa, like Akademikernas R-Kassa. An R-Kassa is an unemployment fund that pays income-related insurance benefits, and Akademikernas R-Kassa is Sweden's biggest provider for university graduates. You're eligible to join if you're a university graduate and currently work or have previously worked in Sweden, the EU, EEA or Switzerland. Want to protect your income in the event that you lose or choose to quit your job at a cost of just 140 Swedish kroner per month? Join Akademikernas R-Kassa. You could receive up to 26,400 kroner per month before tax. Um, Catherine, as usual, you guys put out a poll on the local Sweden's website for us to chat about today. What was the poll about this week? We asked people about a topic that we've discussed a lot of times over the years um, about whether Swedish language skills should be a requirement for permanent residents. And the reason we're talking about that again now is because Sweden's just passed a new migration law, which will come into effect later in July. And if you've been following the locals' coverage of this, you'll know it took a long time to get cross-party. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Agreement on the law. Um, and some of the main changes are things like uh, exceptions for family maintenance requirements for uh, EU citizens bringing family members to Sweden, changes in how residence permits are issued to, uh, to refugees as well. But one proposal that was kind of notable in its absence was the idea of having this language requirement to be a permanent resident of Sweden. And that had been quite widely discussed when the law was first proposed, but it's not in the final version. So it's uh, a change that still may happen, but we don't yet know why. And yeah, it's obviously a very important one to many, many foreigners in Sweden. Okay, so you guys asked the readers if they thought introducing a language requirement for Swedish permanent residents is the correct thing to do. And do you, do you know the results? Um, yes, it was a poll and a question that provoked a lot of discussion, which is always the case when we talk about this subject. It's cropped up again and again as um, the political parties work towards it. In the end, we had over a thousand responses and there was roughly a 70-30 split leaning towards no. So our readers think it should not be a requirement to have Swedish language skills in order to get permanent residence. Interesting, 70-30. Is that something you were expecting, that kind of divide? Um, I think often when we've talked about it in the past, it has been very split. I think people have kind of strong opinions on both sides and... One thing that might be a factor is that we ask specifically about permanent residence, whereas when we talk about citizenship, generally our readers that we speak to are more in favour of a language requirement to gain Swedish citizenship. I think there's an understanding that's a privilege, it um, 
gives you the right to vote in the elections, for example. So it's good to understand what's what's going on. And it's pretty standard across Europe to have a language requirement for citizenship, but less so for permanent residents. What about you guys? What do you think, Richard and Isabella, when it comes to a language requirement for permanent residency? Um, I, I, th- I think there should be language requirements. I think it's, it, it, it helped people um, make more of an effort to learn Swedish. And I think it's, it's very hard to sort of be part of Swedish society if you, don't, if you can't um, speak Swedish and understand Swedish. But, but I also think, it's, I think the requirements should be relatively low because some people are just rubbish at languages. It's sort of terribly unfair to be denied any citizenship rights because you just find it hard to... I mean, I, I'm sure living here, you must have met Swedes who are from a sort of educational background, you'd expect them to speak good English. But there's a handful of people who just obviously are just bad at languages and they just can't even learn English. Uh, uh, you know, surprisingly bad at English. And so I think it's the same with foreigners living in Sweden. It's a bit unfair to deny them citizenship completely. But I think you should at least have achieved a sort of basic level. I think it's also be quite difficult to impose in practice because of the EU's freedom of movement, because it's never going to be impossible for Europeans to be live in Sweden without knowing Swedish. So then it would become this discriminatory law that would just affect people from outside the EU. Uh, I think that's really, really true, Isabella, because I think in some ways I agree with Richard. I personally love learning languages and I think it's a great way to integrate. I've spent many, many, many years of my life trying to learn foreign languages. Um, but one comment I thought was really interesting that we received from a reader, David Gomez, was uh, I think it's a valid ask, but not within the current system. Um, and I think you're always thinking about who a policy will include, who it will exclude. Um, so you have someone like myself. I came to Sweden as a European native English speaker. Uh, and that's a more easy transition. But as you mentioned, the language requirement would only affect non-EU migrants because in the EU, freedom of movement means you don't need a permanent residence permit. You have the same rights automatically. And right now there are issues of segregation. You do have people who move here and don't speak Swedish. And maybe that's because they can get by in English. Uh, in other situations, it might be because of things like housing segregation, having areas where it's really mostly foreign-born people living there and you just don't get the opportunity to speak Swedish. So I think from my perspective, I would just say if you introduce the requirement for Swedish language skills, will that actually help those people learn Swedish who are struggling? Or are you just going to create that hurdle that that means they don't get permanent residence? Um, And that's just going to increase the segregation even more because you just have more people in an insecure situation uh, and you're not fixing the things that have led to led to that segregation. So it's always about, is this part of an overall uh, thought through policy? So personally, I hope if this does get passed in the future, that it's complemented with changes in other areas like housing laws. Yeah, all sorts of other things that contribute to it. Stick with us because we'll be right back. With Sweden's system of unemployment insurance, it's easy even for Swedes to miss out on the benefits of joining an Arkasa. Arkasas are the employment fund that pay out income-related insurance benefits if you lose or quit your job. Membership of Akademikernas Arkasa, the top provider for university graduates, costs just 140 Swedish kroner per month. 
So, 10 years worth of fees corresponds to roughly one monthly payment if you become unemployed. It's like a regular insurance policy for your car or your home, but designed to protect your income. But there is one key difference. As academic and as our CASA is not for profit, it won't charge you a fortune. Employees, the self-employed and even students can join. For more information, visit the Academic and Arcasa website. Now, get your pen and paper ready because I'm going to spell this out for you and direct you to the English language homepage. It's www.akademikernasakasa.se forward slash en. And if you think that was tricky, just wait until you find out what Arcasa is short for. This July, listeners to the podcast can get a one-month free pass which will give you unrestricted access to their local Sweden, meaning that you can read all members-only content when you are logged in. You can redeem this offer by visiting the local.se forward slash podcast offer. Valid through to the 31st of July. Richard, I, I think we have to address the elephant in the room or the elephant in the Zoom on the Zoom call. You look like you're talking to us from a construction site. Where back, whereabouts are you? I'm in um, near Simrasan in, in Skorna, in Ustelien, in, in, in which is a sort of holiday uh, district in Sweden where, where my wife is trying to build a summer house. Uh, she's been doing it for about two and a half years. So if you can see the wall behind, you can still see the insulation, which has been uh, got plastic, capped in by plastic with some sort of studs hammered behind it but there's no there's no actual wall <laughs> it's so, not it's not completed yet okay you said building a summer house not buying building building yes yes the price of summer houses has gone up stratospherically in sweden over the last 10 years or so and, and especially in this area i mean you're talking two or three million to buy a decent summer house around here and so we just decided to to buy it and then these plots came up and she's always wanted to build a house so uh we did i f- perhaps foolishly agreed to that we should do it <laughs> and so for the last three years she's been putting it together and hammering it um i, I mean me, my wife has come in actually maybe she could talk uh t- tell you about the practicalities so Mia, come on in. this is Mia. so Mia's the one who's Hello. been building Hi, Mia. and she could uh so if you want to ask her any practical questions about whether it's a uh, cheaper to, 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 to build it yourself? You well, think? first of all, I heard you say three years. We put the foundations in last year. So. <laughs> yeah, but we spent a year cutting down all the trees. Which know? makes so, two sorry. years. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, fair, enough. Yeah. fair enough, two years. Yeah. Three years, two years. M- Mia, you're, you're, the process has started. Do you regret it or is it, are you living the dream? Are you happy with what you're doing? It's a really nice thing to do. Uh, if you enjoy cutting wood, uh, it's great. I think it's a, a great way to spend your holiday as well. I'm happy if Richard takes the kids to the beach and I can spend my days building stud walls. <laughs> where did, can you tell us, where, where did the inspiration come from to build your own summer house? I don't know. I mean, I was looking at, at run-down old houses to renovate, but I couldn't really find anything that sort of inspired me enough. Um, and then I started drawing houses, you know, what I would like to build. That's, yeah. And then we just went from there. I have a, a question for Mia. Yeah, I'm just, as someone who's very unpractical and only built my first IKEA chair last year, I'm just wondering how you went from drawing houses to building one that's presumably got to be safe to live in. How, how do you learn that? I mean, we've renovated, or more or less me, I guess, a couple of apartments before. 
so I, I wouldn't suggest starting by building, you know, an entire house from scratch. Um, but, you know, if you can't do any, do something, there's loads of stuff online. Uh, I mean, YouTube is great for DIY. Um, and of course there's, there's, you just look at sort of other people's plans and, and instructions as well. Uh, and then you just go from there. I wish you guys uh, all the luck. I mean, it'll be nice to um, talk to you guys when it's done, whenever that is. How long do you think it's going to take? Um, I'd say another month, two months, months, perhaps three. Mia, if you want to stick around with us, that would be great because it would be nice to have a, another Swede. We've got Isabella with us. And Isabella, I want to, I want to talk to you about um, something. You know, talking to Christian earlier on and Richard and Mia just now, Richard and me are talking about the summer house, you know, the Sommerstugen. That seems such like such a Swedish piece of the Swedish identity. And Christian's been talking about the misrepresentation of Sweden in international media. And it struck me that so much of the image of Sweden is built up on on these kind of stereotypes, maybe. Uh, how people look at Sweden from outside. You yourself are Swedish, but you're living in Paris. Is this something that you've experienced? Yes, I think there are some sw- Swedish stereotypes, but I don't think they're as maybe propagated about Swedes abroad. I think I hear them more from people outside Sweden who live in Sweden, uh, because I don't think there's that many Swedes <laughs> abroad for uh, for others to meet, maybe. Uh, I. But uh, one of the things I hear from a lot of people who live in Sweden who aren't born in Sweden is that Swedes are very reserved. Is that maybe something the the Brits and the pod can can confirm or deny if that's something you think. Christian, you're, you're a professor of journalism. What are some of your students? Are they reserved? My Swedish students? Yeah. Yeah, they're, I mean, I'm American. I'm, you know, we're used to just talking nonstop. <laughs> so it's, um, yeah, I would say the Swedish students are more reserved. Obviously, the stereotype of Swedish people being quiet and reserved, it is a stereotype, but like a lot of stereotypes is based on certain truths. Yeah, I think that probably where you find that issue of sort of reservedness, if you're talking about working environment, for example, you find maybe at meetings and things like that, that people aren't as willing to say things as they might be willing to say, for example, when I was working in the United States or if I was working in the UK. But that's definitely a stereotype of Swedish people, that that reserved attitude. And I think one of the biggest Swedish stereotypes out there, if not the biggest, is that all Swedes are blonde haired and blue eyed. And that just, of course, isn't the case. In many parts of the country, you can find multicultural cities and villages with people of all backgrounds. And it kind of leads me back to what we were talking about, Christine, at the beginning. You know, this false image of Sweden that might exist because of selective reporting. Would would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I've, I've used the term um, ethno-Disneyland uh, for the way in which Sweden is often described a lot in international press. And what I mean by that is a sort of a utopian vision of the way in which Swedes look. And I think that on the surface, that might seem like a relatively superficial, unimportant sort of light issue about everybody being blonde. But I think at the deeper level, it's actually problematic because it it makes a very clear suggestion about who is Swedish and what is Swedish. And I think that that this is where those kind of light stereotypes, Bjornborg, Abba, Ikea, they sort of very quickly can mutate into quite problematic issues about the way we look. And I think that in the discussion of COVID, for example, that this was one of the issues, that that, we, that the discussion of Sweden really didn't fall along class or ethnic lines. People were discussed that in Sweden, this is happening. 
But in Sweden, there were very, very clear distinctions about how people were affected by this disease based on where they came from or where they lived. Sweden as a country also has a very dark history of race biology. So I think that view of Swedish people being seen abroad, it comes from that history. And that's why I think it's also very important to counteract in, in how Sweden is seen today. Isabella, if we move on to the weirder side of stereotypes, what are some of the strange uh, stereotypes that you've uh, found well, through your reporting? Catherine told me quite a fun one, so I thought maybe if you wanted to share what you've you, what you've heard about that, because I haven't heard that before. Um, I've heard that Swedes are all scared of badgers. <laughs> <laughs> Which goes very much against these ideas we've been talking about, about strong, tall descendants of Vikings. So I'd yeah, please tell me if it's true. I mean, is that is that true, Isabella? Yeah, it made me laugh because I, I didn't know it was a stereotype, but it's it's definitely not untrue. Like I've always learned that badgers are very dangerous, and uh, you should be very wary of running into them. And I think there's kind of like a midwife tip in Sweden that if you go out in the forest where there might be badgers, you should put crisp bread, like knäckebröd, in your boots because badgers will want to bite your leg until it snaps. So if they hear the crunch, then they'll think they've succeeded and run away faster. Uh, so I think, I don't know, in my view, it's maybe more concerning that other countries aren't afraid of badgers. But that's so cute. Okay, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of Sweden and Focus. Thanks to Catherine, Christian, Richard and Isabella for their fascinating insights into the week in Sweden. And a special thanks to Mia and good luck with the summer house. Sweden and Focus is a band of production in collaboration with The Local. If you are liking the episodes, please think about subscribing and leaving a rating. And if you want to support independent journalism, why not become a member of The Local today? And remember, if you are going out for a walk, stay safe from badgers by shoving a few knäckebröds down your socks. Until next week, take care. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus. If you'd like to hear a full-length version of the podcast each week, as well as an additional midweek episode with more interviews and analysis, please upgrade to Membership Plus make sure to check the episode notes for details on how to upgrade. Sweden in Focus is a podcast by The Local Europe. Our sound engineer is Rhys Edwards. The publisher is James Savage.